Hello and welcome to the Bicom podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Bicom. Today is the 21st of December and the 76th day of the war. Today I'm joined by Salit Zahavi. Salit I've known for several years. She is a lieutenant colonel in the IDF Reserves and the founder and president of ALMA, an independent research and education centre focusing on Israel's security challenges on Israel's northern border. Salit, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you for having me. So I would just add, not only have I known Salit since she was uh, serving in uniform, but uh, for our listeners, I can highly recommend the material that Alma produces on a very regular basis. Really one of the leading leading institutions in terms of what's happening on Israel's northern border. And that will be the focus for our conversation today. But perhaps I could start with just kind of a, a personal note for you. As a resident of the north and, and a mother, maybe you can describe for our listeners what it's been like uh, over the last couple of months. Uh, it's been living under existential threat, living in a feeling of a war zone, even though nobody knows about it. Uh, it's not the peaceful, quiet village that I used to live here. We hear the fightings every day, all the time, around the clock, in the night and in the day. Uh, even though in my specific town we didn't have many alerts, it's funny to say it, but only three, uh, the, it's all around us, everywhere. And the saddest thing is that 10 minutes drive from here to each direction, except from the south, communities are evacuated. Uh, people can know that 60,000 people cannot go back to their homes because there are anti-tank missiles that are being launched every day, including today, uh, rockets and missiles and the UAVs as well. And IDF is retaliating in Lebanon. So we also hear the IDF artillery very loudly. Uh, we hear the drones of the IDF, we hear the jets, we hear the helicopters. So it's constant noise, but I started from existential fear because this war started from October 7 massacre of Hamas that we knew over here up north that the same massacre was planned by Hezbollah and that they were fully pre prepared to execute it in the north. And for some reason it didn't happen, but the capability still exists. And this is something that I, I don't have the enough words in any language to describe the feeling as a mother that we, we try to figure out, okay, what do we say to the kids if we hear shooting in the town because the bomb shelter at home is ineffective after what we saw that happened in the South, that they opened the bomb shelters and killed the families in the bomb shelter. So it's kind of a nightmare that came through elsewhere in Israel, and we could see the, the nightmare, and we can see what will happen to us if this threat is not uh, eliminated. So we'll get into some of the tactical and, and strategic issues, but just as well on kind of your, your, your personal circumstances in your village, if that's all right, kind of what do you, what can you tell your children, kind of what's the, uh, what's the message and how have they, have they, have they been reacting over the last uh, two months? 
The first few days were terrible because we didn't know whether Hezbollah will join in and we didn't know exactly what's happening. And there were not enough IDF forces here. There were not IDF forces here. It took a few days. And uh, I uh, sent my kids away immediately. And I have two elder sons. They didn't want to go. They wanted to stay here with me. And I didn't agree. I have another young daughter, which is was also really difficult to hide the news from her. So she will not see what happened in the South and to hide my fears from her. Uh, with the elders, I told them for the first time, they knew, they, they truly understood what mommy is doing because during the years, I didn't expose them too much to, to what I do and to what I understand about the regional arena in Hezbollah. Uh, but what happened actually is that everywhere I sent them, they had alerts like in Tel Aviv or Celia or whatever, but over here we didn't have alerts. And now that they came back, we had alerts over here as well. I live nine kilometers from the border. And um, again, the, 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 the main, uh, the most um, threatening feeling is that, or horrifying feeling is that it didn't start yet here. Like we are before the beginning here, and yet we are already at war, which doesn't enable people to live in their homes. So it's kind of a catastrophe, I don't know, a, a contradiction, this way of life here now. I hear you. Um, so, so far, I mean, has the, has the strikes by Hezbollah been limited, restricted to the border area, or are they striking deeper as well into Israel? Most strikes were uh, limited. Very few uh, crossed the 10 kilometers uh, range, very few, but uh, this is uh, the range of up to 10 kilometers is a range of about uh, 260,000 people. That only 60,000 of these are evacuated. So, uh, or 80,000, you know, it's 60,000 were evacuated by the government and 20,000 more decided that they can't stay here and, and left as well. These are evaluations. Uh, they are spread in a hotel. As I this week, I uh, traveled the Galilee a little bit, and I I visited the empty towns. And to see this emptiness where people used to live, the the closed shopping malls, nobody in the streets, no children, no families. This is the saddest thing I ever I ever seen, and. Uh, to see how, you know, the fact that the municipalities need, need, I met with the mayors and the municipalities need to take care of their own people while they are not in the municipality. They are away, but they still have a need for services like uh, welfare and education and medical services and funerals. For example, today they canceled the uh, memorial ceremonies and funeral because of the threat of the rockets. And what can you tell us about the general scale of damage um, in the northern Israel and how effective has the uh, has the anti uh, anti missile system been? Uh, many missiles that were launched here are anti tank cruise missiles that are very accurate. They are being launched mainly to military IDF forces, including their soldiers themselves, either killing them or wounding them, but also to uh, the communities 
against farmers that are cultivating the fields and uh, they were killed uh, or treating the chickens uh, against soldiers. And the problem is and wherever soldiers are. So if soldiers came to a community to stay somewhere and then anti-tank missiles are being launched, we've seen hits in homes, we're seeing hits in schools, we've seen hits in kindergarten of the anti-tank missiles and of rockets, which are less accurate. So Arendon can intercept these rockets, but it's not 100% and every day there are hits as well. And Arendon cannot intercept cruise missiles. It's different technology. These missiles were designed to hit tanks, while well, now they are used to hit homes. Uh, or as I've said, the IDF positions. So they're, they're, the only way to defend yourself from these missiles is to hide, but you only have a few seconds, and very few seconds. So this is something that there is no answer for the way they are being used now. And I think this is the main reason now people don't want to come back because you know we got used to the rockets and we knew we have an answer with the Iron Dome. But though, what do we do with... You know, just uh, shotguns and rifles and snipers and, and uh, anti-tank missiles, which are against the people. This is uh, something that we are not used to. I remember, I think it was earlier this year when I was last up on the border with you. And it was notable, I and mean, we've been doing this for, for several several years, but, but more and more we saw the, uh, the prominence of Hezbollah lookouts, Hezbollah flags um, displaying their presence along the border. I understand it's difficult to get there at the moment, but what's your assessment of how successful the IDF has been in targeting those positions that serve as, as lookout posts? I say two things. First, yes, before the war, everywhere I went on the border, uh, I could see either Hezbollah positions or Hezbollah military operatives themselves taking photos of me with binoculars following me. Uh, you know, I remember we, um, we took photos of, of, of them taking photos of us. Exactly. Uh, I, I think even myself as an expert, I had kind of a psychological barrier to understand how dangerous this was because eventually these Hezbollah were trained to kill us and they were trained to kill us as part of a bigger campaign, not just a sniper. They trained to kill us uh, during an invasion like Hamas had done. It's the same plan. The plan was not written in Gaza. It was written in Beirut or in Tehran. Since the war started, the IDF, uh, as I've said, is retaliating and responsing and trying to prevent the shooting from Lebanon. So there are many, many squads of Hezbollah that were eliminated by and attacked by the IDF. Uh, Hezbollah itself reported around almost 120 uh, military operatives that were killed and few civilians, very few. Uh, there is damage to this position. I'm not sure whether all of them were eliminated, but most of them probably. There is damage to the headquarters and other terrorist sites of Hezbollah, which are inside the homes of the Lebanese. So we have seen attacks that heated homes because these homes are used for military purposes of Hezbollah, which is actually, you know, using the Lebanese as human shield. <clears throat> um, this is also happening. We have seen Hezbollah launching missiles next to unifil positions and next to Lebanese army positions, using them as, as human shields as well. So I can say that even though there is daily retaliation of the IDF against Hezbollah terror infrastructures in South Lebanon, it doesn't bring to the result 
of uh, stopping completely these attacks. And every day they are between 10 to 15 to 20 to seven, I don't know. Every day there are attacks that are coming from Lebanon uh, by Hezbollah or Hamas next to the border, coming from the border area from South Lebanon. Uh, and in order to eliminate this threat, a much wider military strikes and operation is needed. Right. Well, that was my that was going to be my next question. I mean, when, when I speak to the to the IDF, they're relatively satisfied with their with their ability, as you say, to kind of to target the cells, um, the terror cells that are launching rockets and anti tank missiles. Sometimes even before they're able to launch them, they 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 have the uh, the accurate intelligence and using using uh, Israeli drones. But the question is kind of is this enough? And is is a larger operation inevitable? And how do you see that playing out? It's not enough since they do succeed again and again and again every day. IDF succeeds again and again and again every day, and this is exactly the scenario we discussed many times which is a scenario of action, reaction, action, reaction that doesn't enable us to have uh, regular lives here. My daughter didn't go to school for a month and a half, and now she went back to school, but I am extremely worried about that because you cannot send 60 pupils to the shelter in the first floor uh, in 10 or 15 seconds, which this is what we've got. So they, they are instructed to just hide below the tables which I don't even want to imagine. So IDF is fighting this in a limited way, while Hezbollah continues in a limited way. And the result is that you don't have a strategic attack that is coming from Hezbollah, and you don't have a strategic success of the IDF to eliminate this threat. And the bottom line is that the people here are not going back to their homes. They are afraid. And everywhere I went in the Galilee uh, this week. And we ask these questions, you know, in each community there is the rapid uh, response uh, squad. Uh, these are people that are living there. They were recruited to the army, they are wearing uniforms, but they live in these communities and they send their families away. Their families were evacuated. So they are over there by themselves. And each of them told us that their wives and children are not, are, are not willing to go back as long as this is the situation. Solutions. I see the, the diplomatic negotiations now. And it's funny, you know, what is being published is more on the side of Hezbollah and the Lebanese. So you can actually understand that what is being published is more around the demands of Hezbollah and the Lebanese to cease fire. And these demands are uh, the opposite of the resolutions that were made in the United Nations Security Council during the years, because there was one resolution, 1559, that said that all the militias in Lebanon should be disarmed, including Hezbollah, of course. And there was another resolution that ended the previous war that was more specific and said, 1701, that said that the area next to the border, around 20 kilometers next to the border inside Lebanon, should be empty of any illegal military presence which means, again, Hezbollah's presence and Hamas and whatever. And it, none of these resolutions were implemented. It is not clear from the, the way these resolutions are phrased who should implement them. There is no deadline to the implementation of these resolutions. And the United Nations during the years also added a demand to Israel, which is withdrawing from Sheba farms and withdrawing from Raja. 
which is impossible because Rajal is an Israeli town that uh, we took from Syria in 1967 with the Golan. And these people are saying, we are Israeli citizens. Maybe we were Syrians in the past, but we have no connection whatsoever to Lebanon. So this is a humanitarian issue. You, we cannot just abandon these people, which are, by the way, are Alawites, uh, and give them to the mercy of Hezbollah on the other side of the border. And the United Nations that, you know, put face as if it cares about human rights is not doing anything around these issues. Just saying Israel, you should evacuate North and Roger, which is, this is not, this is not an option. I don't know how can we do something like that. Um, so I don't see any solution. Hezbollah is saying we, we have any legitimacy to do whatever we want because they have all the legitimacy needed from Iran. Uh, they don't really care about human lives anywhere. If they try to analyze the past, how they ended up in the war in 2006, they don't look two years after the war. They look 17 years after the war. And 17 years after the war, Hezbollah became much, much stronger than it used to be in every aspect, military, so, uh, social, and political. Lebanon became much, much, much weaker. So I want to have a diplomatic solution. I live here. I know that war is going to be much, much more worse than everything we experienced until now, including what we experienced in Gaza. And on the other hand, I don't see a diplomatic solution. Even if Hezbollah will say it accepted a diplomatic solution, there is no way that Hezbollah would be willing to actually implement it. So we, we understand that's the, the American effort is kind of uh, under the leadership of um, of of, of, uh, of Hochstein is to kind of to open up to do what they did on the uh, on the sea border last year and to and to and to pivot that across to the land border as you've discussed kind of the Shiva farms Hadov and uh, and and Raja um, in parallel is also a French initiative um, could you tell us a little bit about what they're what they're trying to do and if that found any any better chance. I don't know what they are trying to do. I can tell you again what we see, the, the reports of these negotiations, mainly from Lebanese media and a little bit from the French media. So it it is discussing, instead of uh, the area which should be free of any illegitimate weapon, according to Resolution 1701, it should was supposed to be an area of around 20 kilometers from the border up to the Litani River. Now they discuss six kilometers from the border. I didn't hear anything about... Uh, who is responsible for implementation except for ideas that French will be deployed, French soldiers will be deployed there rather than the UN soldiers that are now deployed with 10,000 soldiers. Even with the French, I, I truly have a question. What, they will go house to house to take off the rockets like IDF is now doing in Gaza? I, I truly want to understand what's the mechanism to disarm Hezbollah in South Lebanon because South Lebanon looks like Gaza, there are piers of tunnels everywhere, there are rockets everywhere, there are Hezbollah military, hostile Hezbollah military operatives everywhere, and I don't see the French is doing anything that will bring to the killing of French soldiers, and actually I totally understand that, I don't even want to demand that from them. Mm. So what kind of mechanism will solve the problem? I don't see mothers like myself on the, on the 
Lebanese side of the border, Shiite mothers. I'm not talking about Christians because it's a different story in Lebanon. But Shiite mothers, the base, the hard base of Hezbollah. I don't see these mothers taking the rockets out of their homes and saying, okay, Hezbollah, get out of here. This is not happening. The opponents to Hezbollah in Lebanon are the same opponents to Hezbollah before and during this war. And they, are, they don't have enough power to disarm Hezbollah. So another element of the of the international community's approach, I suppose, mostly by the, the Americans, but also the Brits to an extent, we saw very soon after October the 7th, um, the US moving the aircraft carriers and then a second aircraft carrier um, into the uh, off the Israeli coast. And that's been interpreted broadly as a as a warning to Hezbollah. Um, do you think that do you, do you think that threat still holds um, and will that change shift the calculation of Hezbollah? I don't think it ever it was ever a threat. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think that deterrence, uh, October 7th proved us that we don't know anything about deterrence when we speak about terrorist organizations. That's it. We, we think differently. We have a different state of mind. And even for myself, it's really difficult to anticipate when and how exactly uh, Hezbollah will change its course. I myself don't think that Hezbollah planned to invade and then uh, change its intentions because of the U.S. carriers. I believe that the value of the U.S. carriers is extremely high in two things. First, with regard to the Israeli uh, morale, and this is also important, to our, uh, you know, uh, spirit and state of mind to be capable of fighting this and defending ourselves and defending our homes to know that we are not, not alone in this. But more important is that the, the operational perspective of that, meaning that if things will get out of control, there is a force here that is prepared to do something. And I, I think this was proved now with the, what is happening with the Houthis that it was very uh, easy and quickly to establish a coalition and to send uh, the crew and the Navy to these areas. And I hope there will be results for that. I'm not sure, but I hope there will be results for that. Mm. One of, I mean, I'll be careful about kind of talking about conventional wisdom because as you, as you, as you imply, a lot, of, a lot of our thinking has been uh, completely disrupted um, following, following the event. But one of the, if I, if I, now say that a paradox anyway. The one of the uh, conventional thinking is that Iran was using the status of Hezbollah as a, an insurance policy against any potential attacks against Iran itself and against its nuclear program. And therefore, under that logic, um, Hezbollah would want to keep their powder dry, so to speak, and keep their main military capacity as as that insurance policy for Iran for a later stage. Do you still think that's accurate? In the past decade, the later stage uh, is keep being postponed in two years again and again and again, until even during this war, we saw in the UN a discussion that talked about the advance of uh, Iran in the nuclear program only in the past few months during the war. So maybe the Iranians know something that we don't. Uh, maybe we got to this point that you were talking about with the nuclear issue. And maybe the analysis of Iran was that... Uh, it's time to open a long-term campaign against the state of Israel and against the Western uh, uh, presence in the Middle East. 
a long-term campaign, meaning years of campaign, that will not only bring the defense for the nuclear program, but also will stop the normalization process and uh, eventually will also damage the very existence of the state of Israel. And I think they got to the point that operationally they were prepared. Like they finished the preparations. Okay, we've seen this uh, very good with Hamas, but it's the same with Hezbollah. It's the same with the Houthis. They are prepared. They 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 got to the level of pre preparedness that they are satisfied with. And uh, maybe the timing, uh, we didn't expect the timing again, but the timing, uh, we maybe we don't know everything about the timing. This is what I'm trying to say. This conversation can be not depressing at all to tell you the truth if the west will unite with israel in this campaign against terror if the media and the international media will stop framing this campaign as israel hamas war and start framing this campaign as the campaign against terror this could be an opportunity rather than a risk, an opportunity for the Middle East to become a better place for its for the people who live here. Because it's not that uh, in Lebanon or Gaza or Syria or Iraq there are prospering democracies. Okay, in each of these countries there are different problems or, or areas. There are different problems, but in any case, in all of these places except for Israel. People are living in poverty. They have no human rights. Uh, their their life are threatened on a daily basis, and there is no democracy. So, you know, instead of stopping us from fighting against terror, if the United, if the the international community will will unite with us in this campaign, we can bring prosperity. This could be a, an amazing opportunity to bring prosperity to the region, including to the poor Gazians, and, and to change the education and to change the values that these children just nine kilometers from where I am are being educated upon. Well said, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, just a couple more questions, if, if I may. Um, we understand that uh, Hamas were, were pretty disappointed that Hezbollah didn't join in on that unified attack on the uh, on on the 7th um but we have seen some as well as Hezbollah operating and you you related to it earlier Islamic jihad and Hamas cells also operating out of out of southern Lebanon what can you tell us about their capacity and also how that the level of coordination between the the, the Palestinian terror groups and Hezbollah I'll start with the capabilities. There is presence of Hamas in Lebanon with a few hundreds of operatives and probably a few thousands of rockets. Uh, and even if they don't have the few thousands of rockets uh, which were used, they, uh, they can borrow from Hezbollah. Uh, this uh, plan to establish Hamas in Lebanon was created a few years ago uh, by Iran and the Iranians and Hamas work together to expand the presence of Hamas, the military presence of Hamas in the refugee, the Palestinian refugee camps uh, inside Lebanon. We've been following that in Alma, and we saw that it composed of two units, and there were headquarters in, in uh, Sidon, and uh, there were commanders. So it's not only the political uh, level of uh, Hamas that is presence in Lebanon, 
El Aruri, it's also a military presence, and that's why you see these rockets being launched to Israel. There is also a small presence of Islamic Jihad, but it is not the same as, uh, as Hamas. As for the relationships, this relationship between Hamas and Hezbollah had ups and downs uh, again and again during the years. Uh, in the past few years, we saw much more coordination. We saw a lot of meetings between Nasrallah and Hamas leader, and then Nasrallah and the Iranian foreign minister, kind of the go-to person for both sides to speak with along the way to coordinate his campaign. Um, I don't, and, and I'm a, a lonely voice in this, but I think that everything is going according to the plan, to the Iranian plan. Uh, most researchers believe that uh, Hamas wanted, as you said, Hamas wanted Hezbollah to join in, but Hezbollah didn't. I think that it was not meant that it will join in from the first place that quickly. Uh, I, I think that if you analyze the history of 1973, you understand that in the military aspect, uh, they wouldn't gain anything if they if they join in. At the they will cause a lot of damage to Israel, but eventually Israel can recover. And definitely it would have brought to a more intense involvement of the United States. Look what is happening now. This is kind of a win-win. Uh, the world is criticizing us for Gaza. In Lebanon, nobody understands the risk. 60,000 Israelis cannot go back to their homes. We practically evacuated five kilometers of the Israeli state up here in the Galilee. If we will initiate war in Lebanon, nobody understands why. If we will not initiate war in Lebanon, the we we lost piece of land. Okay, that's that's the bottom line of that. Uh, and others that stayed here cannot live in safety. I think this is a much better deal the, to Hezbollah than uh, to go at the same time with Hamas. And this is what we need to change. This is exactly what we needs to be changed. Wow, I mean, I, I mean, okay. I mean, I mean, do you have a what would be your what would be your prognosis if you were if you were to sit down this afternoon with the with with the prime minister? What would your advice be? That he must start immediately the efforts to build the legitimacy to eliminate the threat of Hezbollah with the international community by any means, and to work with the international community on the small details of the question of the diplomatic solution. Because to me, it seems that the people who are sitting in New York, Paris, or Washington don't understand what it means to send an international force that will enforce this whatever arrangement that will be created. They don't really understand how the day-to-day -day look like from the ground. How do you push Hezbollah up north if it's not willing to do so? How will, in, if you don't get into the houses and take off the munitions? Now, all you have to do to understand it is to look carefully of how Hamas was deployed in the houses in Gaza and understand that it's the same methodology, the same tactic. This is what our government needs to do, to work with international community on a solution, on a true solution that will make sure that I can live in peace with my kids here.
Absolutely. I mean, we know that the, the Lebanese government kind of, I mean, I mean, the, the pressure needs to be brought to bear by the international community on the Lebanese government if such an entity exists or has any, any power. It but doesn't exist. Right, Hezbollah is right. a member of the Lebanese government. Right. And it's uh, and it's it's stuck. But what you what what do you sense? I know you analyze kind of uh, attitudes within within Lebanese society as well. What do you think in the last two months um, is is the uh, Hezbollah standing amongst the population, um, both amongst the Shiites and also the, uh, the the Sunni and the Christians there? Sunni and Christians uh, are uh, most of them are opponents to Hezbollah and Druze, and Shiites. Most of them are. <laughs> For Hezbollah, and I'm saying most of them because in both sides you see a little bit, you know, different voices. But as I've said, this situation existed before the war, and it's, it exists now as well. And the only thing that changes, the, vo the different voices are talking much more loudly. But it didn't change the balance of power inside Lebanon, mm -hmm. and it didn't change the fact that Hezbollah is the strongest player in Lebanon. And it didn't change the fact that there is no political decision that is being made in Lebanon without the concession of Hezbollah. And it didn't change the fact that, he, that Lebanon is stuck in a political uh, crisis and an economic crisis, that we don't see the end of it. Uh, and again, I, I said, my opinion is very different from many researchers. I don't think that, uh, uh, you know, so, some said, for example, that the fact that uh, eventually the Lebanese succeeded in agreeing on uh, extending the term of the the head of the army, uh, Aoun, uh, before it will end by the end of this month and they will be left with no president, no government, it's an interim government, uh, no head chief of staff of the army. So the discussion was around the head of the army and in this they succeeded in extending his term, not choosing another one, a new one. Uh, people attributed to this as an achievement to those who are against Hezbollah. Maybe it is, I don't know, but uh, I don't see how it is a game changer eventually with regard to my security. So let's not be confused, you know. Eventually Hezbollah will not be willing to just give up. <clears throat> and and Tehran will not be willing, and nobody threatens Tehran, by the way. So will not be willing just to give up the, the, the munitions and the missiles and drones of Hezbollah. <clears throat> So thank you so much today for for your for sharing your analysis, and we wish you and your family well, and to know uh, to know better times. And I'm sure we'll speak again and uh, and keep uh, keep keep monitoring the situation. But wishing you well for now. Thank you very much. Thank you.